Every once in a while, I will see a theological debate on Twitter, and I'll be like, huh? Why are we doing this again? But people come from all different places with different readings and understandings of their faith. In this mini-series, we'll address some of the debates I've seen in recent months. Nope, I'm not touching the guy who said women can't go to heaven. He's got issues. But we'll talk about the resurrection baptism, Pelagianism, and the age of the earth. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD, and who thinks a lot about how to think. In this Season 1 Category mini-series, we're talking through some theological issues I've seen pop up on my socials. Today's topic is the resurrection of the dead. How important is the resurrection of the dead? The other day, Tim Keller tweeted this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is true. But why? One time, my brother and I were at a bagel shop, and he asked me, what is the one thing that, if proven false about Christianity, would cause you to walk away? I said, the resurrection of the dead. Why? I want to make my case today on why the resurrection of the dead is the centerpiece of our hope. It will be incomplete, but as solid as a 20-something minute conversation can give. It's a bigger deal than your old-school Wayne Grudem systematic theology gives room for. When talking about Jesus' resurrection, he focuses on what the body is like, giving only a couple pages to what he calls the doctrinal significance of the events. He briefly addresses what's going on um, with our regeneration, our justification, and our glorification, and I mean briefly. In the chapter on glorification, he talks about what our resurrected bodies will be like. It's almost as if he's really focused on the material matter above all else. Michael Byrd's evangelical theology adds more layers in his chapter on Jesus' resurrection and does well to explain the diversity of historic thought on the so-called intermediate state after death and the final state of being raised. Our very best source, of course, for the importance of the resurrection of the dead is the scriptures itself. Hebrews 9.27 says we're all going to die. It's inevitable. It's part of every human experience, losing others and dying themselves. We say it's natural, and in the biological sense it is, but in a spiritual sense it's not. When God placed humans in the Garden of Eden to represent him, he gave them access to the tree of life, which kept them from death. How that works in practicality or what that actually looked like isn't of the author's interest, but it is a true story. 
When access was cut off from the tree of life because of their sinful choice to not trust God, the humans were sure to die, and so we all do. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that death came through the sin of one man. He continues that life will come through one man. One man will be our tree of life. This is Jesus of Nazareth from first century Galilee. We all need him. The word resurrection doesn't appear in the Old Testament, but starting with Daniel and Babylon, it was beginning to be flushed out as an idea. It was so flushed by the time Jesus came on the scene that there was actually religious divisions over it between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees fully embraced the reality of it by the power of God alone. They believed that on the great day of the Lord, they would be raised to life. You can see that they assumed this reality in the trap question that they would ask Jesus, like, if a man has seven wives, who is he married to at the resurrection? The Sadducees were less inclined to believe in the supernatural, and so they denied that this would ever happen. Jesus believed it would, and that he would be the bringer of it, calling himself the resurrection and the life. When Jesus raised the son of the widow in Nain and Jairus' daughter, it really got people on edge. Because this was a power of God not seen since the days of Elijah, which the religious leaders said would not occur again until the Messiah. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in such close proximity to Jerusalem, it was a great hope and a marvel to those who believed in him and a great alarm to those who were seeking to protect their own power. And so they moved to kill him. Everything about Jesus' death is loaded with meaning. It wasn't just one man dying on a Thursday. It was the Son of Man, also the Son of God, who was dying as a perfect sacrificial lamb for us all. It was the upside-down inauguration of his kingship. It is where he declared, It is finished, paid in full. We were bought out of our debt. The work of the cross is enormous in our faith. But on Sunday, the women witnessed him alive again. And then the eleven witnessed it, and then the disciples witnessed it, and in total over 500 people witnessed him alive after he was dead. This is the inauguration of new creation and new life. And it isn't just a good for him sort of thing. Like, good for you, you're God. This is good for us too. As he hung on the tree, he paid for the sins that separated us from the tree of life. As he rose back to life, he becomes that access again for us. We trust in him. We erase the distrust in the garden. By the way, where was he raised? A garden. Sure, you and I weren't in the original garden making that mistake, but we've all made that exact decision over and over and over. We need him. So what is promised and why does it matter? Here's where we have to trust the Apostle Paul. Paul writes about the resurrection of the dead most clearly. He's imprisoned because of his belief in it and ultimately killed because of his belief in it. In chronological order of his writings, here's what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There it is. Don't grieve the dead forever. This is not the end. Jesus will bring the dead back to life. When? When he returns and the merger of heaven and earth occurs, he'll call the dead to rise. And if anyone is still alive on that day, they'll be changed into the state of the risen dead. This is to be an encouragement. Death isn't the end. You may have been told that this is a rapture passage, but look at the trajectory of Jesus. He's coming down. So if you meet him in the air, you aren't flying away with him. You're meeting him to join him in his victory parade, his triumph. Also, people don't often talk about the resurrection of the dead when they talk about the rapture, and you have to use the whole passage. In 2 Thessalonians, he gives them a roadmap of the things that must take place before the resurrection of the dead because liars were spreading false information. And these markers include a great falling away from truth, a man of lawlessness, and a restrainer being removed. That's a long conversation unto itself, but Paul was worried that people might be losing hope in the resurrection. Later, he writes even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 58. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I read that entire chapter because it doesn't get any more clearer than that. No commentary needed, really. People get hung up on the baptism part, but we can cover that some other day. The resurrection is the center of our hope. If it isn't happening, then God failed on his promises. If it isn't happening, then we are living pointless lives and we're lying to each other. But Jesus rose, and so Jesus will raise those who trust in him. Later, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's explaining why we need to be ambassadors for Christ, pleading with others to be reconciled to God, and he opens up with this about the resurrection. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So using an analogy of tents, being a tent maker, Paul describes the trade that we'll have from a broken tent to a heavenly building, something modeled from the tabernacle to the temple and something that we'll experience because of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Not our spirits, his spirit. Later, to the church of Philippi, he writes, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death." that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This passage gets weaponized sometimes to make it sound like Paul isn't sure that he will be raised and that he's working to earn it. But what he said is that he is pressing towards it, looking forward to it, And that we all should live up to what we have attained. We have been promised this new life and we can live like that's true. You can't earn it. Jesus earned it. Then in his final letter, he wrote to Timothy that some people have alarmed the church by saying the resurrection already happened. Clearly, for the early church, the resurrection was central. I believe a big part of why it was at the center of their theology and on the outskirts of ours is that we experience legal Christianity. In times and places where calling Jesus the risen king is illegal and death was imminent or at least possible, then the hope in the resurrection was a daily thought. But since Constantine, there's been mainstream pockets of Christians with no fears of this. And then the resurrection is something we talk about on Easter and maybe at funerals. However, I've been to dozens of funerals where they say nothing about it. David Crowder Band had an excellent song on their old A Collision album called Come Awake. It begins with the sound of a heart monitor as a person's vitals collapse. Clearly, we are to imagine our own death. And as the music churns, David sings. Are we left here on our own? Can you feel when your last breath is gone? Night is waiting heavy now. Be quiet and wait for a voice that will say, Come awake. From sleep arise. You were dead. You've come alive. Wake up, wake up. Open your eyes. Climb from your grave into the light. Bring us back to life. Now, maybe you find that really creepy, but it's the beautiful central hope of historic Christianity. Jesus raising us from the dead. Death is not final. 
You might say, well, no, duh. Every Christian believes life is not final. Correct. But what have they replaced the resurrection of the dead with? Plato and Socrates' philosophy of the immortal soul is often what is put in place. Hellenized Jews picked it up and they believed in it firmly, but it was not stated in the scriptures. First of all, a soul biblically is the whole of a person rather than their separate spirit. A separate spirit is also a Greek philosophy. And this persisted in the early church. Justin Martyr lamented, For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but do not admit this, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls when they die are taken to heaven, do not imagine they are Christians. Oof. This went against the Apostles' Creed. It went against the scriptures that they were studying, but it persisted and it still persists. Again, I believe this is connected to the legality of our faith. Pagan nonsense. To believe in a spirit apart from the body going to heaven without the body. This is covered well in Bird's theology book. He writes, I lament that many Christians today think of the afterlife more in line with Plato than Jesus or Paul. Some devout Christians are captured with a vision that when they die, they'll float about heaven like Casper the friendly ghost, play volleyball with the angels on the clouds, and glide between stars like a mannequin in outer space, to which we say, no. That's well said. That's escapism. The thought that the saints will all get bailed out of this wretched place and then God will destroy it? When scripture declares that God will make all things new, that this beautiful creation he made for humans will be made whole again, including the humans themselves, creation will be made new. Creations will be made new. Our souls are not immortal. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.16 that Jesus alone possesses immortality. If it is something we ever possess, it's because it's a gift from him. People don't want to think about waiting to be raised. And I think that is part of this too. But as I argued in the afterlife episode, I don't think that would be anything but a time jump. Okay, so what's the big deal? Isn't it true that everyone is raised? Scripture certainly makes that case. Some rise to judgment and some to life is what Jesus says in John 5. Judgment and life usually are opposite words. The opposite of judgment in the sense of the word here, would be a pardon. The opposite of life is death. Life, instead of death, kind of is a pardon. Is judgment kind of a continued death then? What does life get me out of? The scripture calls it a second death. I call it even more dead. If the soul is immortal then the judgments of fire and brimstone would be fully felt and experienced for eternity. If the soul is not immortal, then the judgment of fire and brimstone would be felt to a point of second death, and then while the fire continues, the person would not. Forget heaven as a cloudy space above, and forget hell as a fire pit below. Think of heaven as the merger of God's space, his realm and ours, like it was in Eden. Paul calls it the unity of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in Ephesians 1.10. The chief promise of the gospel is not that you will go to heaven when you die, but that heaven will come to earth, transforming the world and renewing the earth. So then what's hell? The opposite of drawing nearer to God would be going further away, and if God is omnipresent, 
then the second death, being dead, dead, is the only way to be in God's absence. Jesus saves us from our sin. That is forgiveness. Jesus saves us from sin's power. That's the following. Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. That is the future world. So much triumph happened at the cross. There we were forgiven, pardoned, and made debt-free. There all powers and authorities were defeated, and we now have just one king. The triumph of the resurrection is that the enemy's biggest weapon, death, was used up on Jesus and he outlasted it. He offers this resurrection to all who believe. No matter what I face in this world, no matter how I die, I'm getting up. And when I do, the world will be made new and I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, without delay. No pause of fellowship. Instant. That only seems impossible because we think linearly in three dimensions, but God is outside of space and time. It is Jesus' resurrection that is the objective grounds of our salvation. Bird explains this well. Death and resurrection are representative acts. The Messiah undergoes them on behalf of his people. God executes his verdict of condemnation against sin on the cross, and then he issues another verdict of justification in the resurrection. By raising Jesus up in the power of the Spirit, God vindicates Jesus as the faithful son and as the righteous sin-bearer. So now we trust in Jesus as our representative, and then we share in the justification, which leads to life. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. This has been a special season one episode of the podcast. 